0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On today's show, the latest season of the NPR podcast White Lies recently debuted, and this season is all about a prison takeover in Alabama. We hear more about the series and the investigation behind it. Plus, WRKF's Capital Access reporter Paul Braun and the Gulf States newsroom's healthcare reporter Shalina Chotlani recently said their goodbyes. We look back on a conversation with the two of them about their journeys into public radio. But first, Mardi Gras is back. After a stay-at-home year in 2021 and 2022's shortened parades, crews will be rolling on their full traditional routes this year. But local businesses are still dealing with the weird, volatile, post-pandemic economy. Reporter Carly Berlin has the story.
1: An industrial-sized standing mixer churns a batch of sweet-smelling dough at Loretta's authentic pralines. It's one step in the process of crafting the season's beloved king cakes.
2: Oh, Jerry, how many uh, cakes can you get out of one batch?
1: Robert Harrison runs the day-to-day at this family business. One batch gives them 50 king cakes. They're selling more than three times as many a day, and the pace just keeps picking up the closer Fat Tuesday gets. One key ingredient that makes up a third of the recipe, eggs.
3: Well, guess what? Eggs have went up.
1: Last time Harrison looked at an invoice from his supplier, his eyes popped. His egg order cost two and a half times what it did back in 2018. The impacts of avian flu and chickens, along with inflation, have caused the price of a dozen to skyrocket. But just as high as the prices is, is the demand for the king cakes.
2: There is no substitute for eggs. I mean, it is one of the most critical ingredients in a king cake for bakers everywhere. But We've still gotten that, okay, well, we have two and a half times the amount of customers buying King Cakes, almost three times.
1: Harrison thinks it's partly because this year's the first full-blown Mardi Gras since before the pandemic. And because of that, he hasn't had to raise prices. It also helps that not all the King Cake staples went up.
2: They haven't went up on the babies that go into King Cake, so that's a great thing. (laughs)
1: Getting those king cake babies to New Orleans, along with the beads and light-up throws and all the other random trinkets you end up with by the end of Mardi Gras, that's the job of Mark Flood. He shows me some shiny necklaces with beads the size of baseballs that are flying off the shelf.
2: These are like an ornament. They're called blow molds because they're hollow. But these are very popular.
1: Flood is the owner of TJ's Carnival and Mardi Gras Supplies one of many local shops in the business of selling Mardi Gras stuff. And how does all this stuff get here?
2: Slow boat from China. Yeah. That's, that's about it. Everything comes from China.
1: And getting all this here and time for carnival hasn't gone so smoothly this year. COVID is still slowing down shipments out of China, including floods. They've been coming in months behind schedule and that's left him scrambling.
2: Rushing to get it unloaded and then get it on the floor and sell it. Selling product before it was here. It's, that's not good. Not fun. Mm-hmm. Playing catch up. <clears throat> Still doing it right now.
1: He'll be scrambling up until Fat Tuesday, which he says will be his first day off this year. In New Orleans, I'm Carly Berlin.
0: NPR's podcast White Lies debuts their second season about Mariel Cubans who take over a prison in Talladega, Alabama. One of the hosts of the show, Chip Brantley, discovered this historic event when he found a picture of men standing on the roof of a prison asking for help. From our partners at WBHM in Alabama, Cody Short sat
3: down with Brantley to find out more. So, Chip, take me back to you finding this picture. How did you find it, and what did you think when you first saw it?
2: Yeah, so we were—so Andy and I both teach at the University of Alabama, and for another class, we were looking through the photo archives of the Birmingham News, which came across these packets of negatives that said, Cubans take over federal prison in Talladega. One said, Exporting Cuban. There's a little code on the top right corner that just has the year. The year, and it was 1991— And I'm an old person, I graduated high school in 1991, and I had no memory of it. Um, Well, first of all, I didn't know what the photos were, so we scanned them, started looking through them. Like a lot of things, there's no, you know, a, a prison takeover like this, unless you're on the inside, there's not a whole lot to see until there is. But among these photos were these men on the roof, and they had these homemade signs that you could make out. One said, pray for us. One said, uh, please, media, justice, freedom or death. It very quickly was revealed to us that like this is a much bigger story than just a prison takeover.
3: Mm. And in the first episode, you cover what happens. But I mean, tell me what happened in Talladega, Alabama in 1991.
2: In 1991, there were 120 men from Cuba who were being detained there at the prison. And Talladega, the federal prison in Talladega, was basically the last stop for these men. Many of them had been detained for years in federal prisons as immigration detainees, not as prisoners serving a sentence, but as immigration detainees awaiting deportation. Once they were approved for deportation, or as the US government says, repatriation to Cuba, um, they were moved to Talladega. And so these men were awaiting a deportation flight. In, in August, uh, late August of 1991, uh, three of these men were out in a recreation yard, playing handball. And they were able to basically overtake a guard, take his keys, go back into the unit, very quickly kind of took it over and release the other 115 or so detainees. And that, that takeover lasted 10 days.
3: And so what exactly were they protesting?
2: Sort of complicated because most directly they did not want to be deported. They didn't want to go back to Cuba. Many of them feared persecution. They had left Cuba in the first place to come to the United States. All these men had come to the U.S. during the Mario boat lift in 1980 when 125,000 people came to the U.S. in a matter of months. It's like one of the largest uh, refugee you know, mass migrations in the Western Hemisphere forever, you know. So they'd been in the country 11 years, and many of them had been detained for a lot of that time. So they were protesting their conditions, the conditions of their confinement,
3: and at what point did you realize that this isn't about detainees taking over a prison in Alabama? How did you know there was something larger going on here?
2: It's a story that, unless you, you know, are Cuban or Cuban American or you live in Miami, uh, it's it's not a story that's very well known. I think for a lot of Americans that this this mass migration event happened in 1980. The implications of this story of the boat lift and these detainees, we're still feeling today. We've come to think of the story as sort of the first chapter in our modern immigration detention system. At the time, in 1980, we detained very few people who came to this country as immigrants. Today, we detain tens of thousands. And so this really is the, the root of it. We had somebody say to us, the law had existed for immigration detention for a long time. We just hadn't been doing it. And Morial was really the excuse for the U.S. government to begin doing it.
3: So what are the correlations between what we see today? What are some of the issues that still exist? Or what are the things that we are not addressing as a nation?
2: Yeah. The main thing, we focus on immigration detention because that's that was the situation these men found themselves in. They were detained, many of them, for years. Not because they committed a crime or were serving a sentence, but because the U.S. government deemed them, quote-unquote, excludable basically said they were not eligible for legal admission into the country legally the US government argued they had no rights because it was as if they were floating off the coast asking to come in which if you think about it is just a like just an absurd ridiculous n- nightmare scenario that someone's body could be here in this country but we could be making an argument that they're not in the country and therefore they have no due process they have no rights at all and that's exactly what the US government was arguing. Many of the people who were involved in crafting that argument are names that you know today, Rudy Giuliani, Bill Barr. These people were were in the Justice Department at the time sort of crafting these arguments and making these arguments on 60 Minutes and in the press. And you know, if you look at what's happened since then, not just in Republican administrations, but in every administration, we just detained so many people now. Mm-hmm. Um, immigration is an, is an infinitely complex issue.
3: The first season of White Lies focused on civil rights and how white people lie. How does that theme continue to play out in the second season?
2: One of the interesting things about Moriel, and I should say neither Andy nor I is Cuban, or has any Cuban, you know, no claims to Cuban identity, and so we're careful not to make characterizations about, about the different waves of Cuban immigrants over the years. But Undeniably, the first wave of Cubans after the revolution was generally sort of considered white. They were a professional class. Um, many of them, once they got to this country, sort of identified as white.
3: Meaning they, they had the the identity of a white person, but they were actually from Cuba.
2: That's right. I mean, I think they once they came here what one one cuban-american said they sort of leaned into whiteness you know they were zoned for for white schools and segregation academies in miami
3: black people call that passing
2: yeah right Mm -hmm. yeah and did it extremely well i mean they you know they built an empire in south florida um mariel 20 years after the revolution happens and mariel is a much different group of cubans broadly speaking it's 125,000 people so you you know The entire cross-section of the country came in Mariel. But estimates have about a third of them as Afro-Cuban, or to use the racial categories of our country, black. And so what happened with this wave of of Mariel refugees was that very quickly the the Mariel boatlift, which we get into in depth in episode two, um, very quickly that went from being called the Freedom Flotilla, you know, and being celebrated and, oh, we're freeing these people from communist Cuba, to once, white Americans saw images of single black men getting off of shrimp, overcrowded shrimp boats, it became something much darker, and and the, the narrative about Mariel changed like that. And three years later, you have the movie Scarface, you know, which basically is about a Mariel criminal. And so this this sort of perception of criminality very quickly took hold about the Mariel boatlift, and that perception, that story that was told about Mariel Cubans would impact these men on the roof for the 10 years they were here because they were perceived as criminals. They were treated as criminals. And then when some of them did commit crimes, it was, that was the evidence everyone needed to say like, oh, a bunch of criminals, we should keep them locked up. And so they had, in a way, something we explore throughout the season is that these men had no real advocates. I mean, they did. They had some legal aid lawyers and some Cuban Americans who eventually came to their defense, but they just didn't have the type of advocacy that you need. Um, to really affect your situation.
3: Is it safe to say that white people lied to not just other people, but to themselves to contend with their own racism?
2: Yes. <laughs> I think yes. I mean, I think for sure. I mean, I think that's what we explored in the first season, that we explored in a slightly different way in this season. Andy and I are both white, I should say, and that we have especially felt this way with season one, but I think it's true of season two. The things that white people say to each other when they're alone, I mean, we've had all sorts of people in this that we've interviewed for this season sort of talk about race in a way that felt, while we we're having a conversation, while we we're interviewing them, it felt immaterial to the conversation. But sometimes I think white people just can't resist the, the sort of like, well, you know what I'm talking about, you know? And so I think that's one of the things that benefits us as white reporters, frankly, to telling these sorts of stories is that people confide in us. and in a way that feels uh, like they're, they were cons- conspirators, like co-conspirators.
3: What surprised you most in working on this season?
2: I think the thing that surprised me was just decisions that were being made and seeing how those connect to today in a very real, tangible way, not just in a kind of philosophical or foundational way, but in a real, practical, policy-driven way. You just realize how, how, how brief that period of time is.
3: Well, I'm excited for season two of White Lies. Thank you for your time, Chip.
2: Enjoyed it, Cody. Thank you.
3: That was WBHM's Cody Short
0: speaking with White Lies co-host and producer Chip Brantley. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. It's a bittersweet time here at WWNO and WRKF, as two of our reporters recently said their goodbyes. Paul Braun, Capital Access reporter for WRKF, and Shalina Chalani, healthcare reporter for the Gulf States Newsroom, are both moving on to new ventures. But before they left, we wanted to catch up with them to hear about their time at our stations and their most memorable reporting moments. Last week, I spoke with Paul and Shalina as they reflected on their time here. Here's that conversation. Paul, let's start with you. You were born in Baton Rouge, raised in the suburbs. WRKF has kind of been a part of your backdrop for a long time. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into journalism and how WRKF may have played a role in that?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, well, like you said, born in Baton Rouge, raised in Denham Springs, well within the listening area of WRKF. And WRKF was always on when I was growing up. You know, a very distinct shift in my, my point of view on that. I was probably a sophomore in, in high school, and my dad was bringing me to swim practice before school one day, cold, grouchy, not into it. And um, of all things, a radio report, um, an interview with Benazir Bhutto, the the former prime minister of Pakistan, came on the air. um, And, you know, this was after she had just won re-election for a third stint and was under house arrest. And there's all this stuff going on. And like, I knew the name. I I had seen her picture and and some of my textbooks. And I was hearing her from her house talking with Scott Simon. It really cut through to me in a way that did not, I feel like radio is, can only do. And, you know, a few months later, i heard the news report, BBC newscast of, of reporting that she had been assassinated, you know, for her country, for her ideals. And it struck me in a way that really not a lot of journalism had really struck me before I connected to it. I mean, hearing somebody's voice from their own home while they're going through something, it really helps you connect with people in a way that not a lot of things and, and, you know, it's at that moment whenever I heard the news report of her dying that I decided I wanted to be a journalist and do that type of work.
0: What a meaningful and memorable moment. Shalina, I want to go to you. How did you first get into journalism and how did you find yourself specifically interested in reporting on healthcare?
5: Well, I also grew up listening to the radio um, in my small town of Jackson, Mississippi. Um, But even when I was in high school, I started reporting for the school newspaper. And I fell in love with um, just reporting and talking to people and hearing their stories and putting it down on paper. And I took that passion with me to college at Georgetown University. I worked for this alt-weekly paper called The Voice and it was so fun. Um, And while I was... There, you know, my major was science, technology, and international affairs. And my concentration was space exploration and policy. So I went to Georgetown to learn how to do, uh, how to get into space policy in the government. Um, but I loved journalism so much that I changed my career path and I wanted to become a space journalist. At the time, there were no publications available for space journalism because it wasn't really much of a thing. Um, So I did a little bit of space writing. I worked at the Air and Space Museum, and I like wrote some articles about space exploration and things like that, but realized broadly I have a real passion for science reporting. So from science reporting, covering the COVID-19 pandemic later in my career, and other hard science issues, I really got into healthcare and realized that healthcare reporting is a form of science reporting that really is about... The people, and that's why I really fell in love with it because healthcare sort of cross, you know, crosses every aspect of our lives. As
0: we mentioned, Paul, you're from Baton Rouge, uh, from the general area. Shalina, you're also from the Gulf South, from Jackson, Mississippi. I think that's really special, and and honestly, not even that common these days to have reporters from the communities on which they report. So, for both of you, how do you think that your ties to this region have? influenced or shaped or helped your reporting
4: yeah I mean I think it's it's a huge part of of the work that we do and I I, I won't speak for Selena but I feel like it goes way farther than just like knowing how to pronounce troppetuls right off the bat um like it's you know it, it colors everything that we do you know we spent so much time like covering natural disasters hurricanes things like that and having like lived through those experiences, Myself growing up in like 2016 floods, I think it gives you a degree of empathy and an ability to relate and connect with the people you're talking to, and, there, and, and share their stories in a way that um, can connect with with so many so many people.
5: Um, for me, I think growing up in the South has been formative in so many different ways. Um, the first way I can think about is the fact that the South, with all of its nuance you know, an interesting history to say the least. There's just a rich, rich tradition of storytelling um, that is honestly very unique to this region. We have a lot of great storytellers and authors that come from the Gulf South that I grew up reading, um, that I grew up really uh, connecting to, and it really fueled my passion for storytelling and for writing um, and expressing myself um, through that sort of medium. Um, In particular, because I grew up within an immigrant community in Mississippi, my parents are from India, and finding my place in Mississippi and understanding how I relate to the Southern community, a lot of that came through my passion for writing and for being involved in that rich Southern storytelling tradition. I just think this is a really special place to be a writer and to understand your place um, and how you relate to other communities in the South. We are
0: speaking with WRKF's Capital Access reporter, Paul Braun, and the Gulf States Newsroom's healthcare reporter, Shalina Chotlani, as both of them prepare for their next adventures. Paul, you worked for WRKF for four years, covering the Capitol and political news. What were some of the most memorable stories that you worked on that you're really going to take with you into uh, your next ventures.
4: I feel like the big leveling up moment was was the start of the pandemic. And, you know, I think this is about the same time Shalina came on. And we had so many people coming to the newsroom and we we're growing our reporting capacity so much. And the news was so important. I mean, New Orleans was, you know, had the highest concentration of cases per capita in that first wave of the of COVID-19 all of the work felt so urgent and vital and people were listening and connecting with it. And, you know, we were sharing it, not just with folks around here, but with the national audience, with, you know, the firsthand perspective that, you know, only folks like on the ground in, in these communities every day can share.
5: Interestingly, I think one of my favorite stories was the first story that I did for the Gulf States newsroom. Um, I got here kind of in the middle of the pandemic and I really had to hit the ground running. At the beginning of the vaccine rollout, the strategy for giving the vaccine out was putting the vaccine in pharmacies in Louisiana. And the first thought that I had was, well, this is one of the most rural places in the country. There are some places that don't have pharmacies. Um, And that was the basis for an investigation into looking at where the pharmacies were located uh, across Louisiana and seeing if those pharmacies were accessible to all groups of people. Um, And what we found in our investigation was that the majority of pharmacies um, in cities like Baton Rouge were located in predominantly wealthy and whiter areas, which made it difficult for lower income communities of color to get access to the vaccine. And after we released that investigation, the mayor of Baton Rouge actually responded and said that um, she was going to make an effort to place more vaccine in the communities that we had highlighted.
0: That is so incredible to get that kind of response from from the mayor immediately upon your first story. Well, this has been WRKF's Capital Access reporter, Paul Braun, and the Gulf States newsroom's Shalina Chotlani. Thank you both so much for joining me today and best of luck on your next adventures. Thanks.
4: Thanks, Lana. Anytime. <laughs>
0: from wwno in new orleans and wrkf in baton rouge you've been listening to louisiana considered i'm alana schreiber thanks to our guests wrkf's former capital access reporter paul braun and the gulf state's newsroom's former healthcare reporter shalina chotlani and co-host and producer of the white lies podcast chip brantley Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30pm. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at Rouse's.com, with additional support from the Sazerac House.